Hey, this is David Meerman Scott. I'm the author of 10 books, including The New Rules of Marketing and PR, and you are listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, which is also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. This episode of the Marketing Book Podcast is sponsored by Content Marketing World 2017, this September. I'm going to be there. How about you? Content Marketing World is the one event where you can learn and network with the best and brightest in the content marketing industry, including several authors who have been guests on the Marketing Book Podcast. You will leave the conference with all the materials you need to take a content marketing strategy back to your team and to implement a content marketing plan that will grow your business. To register and get the best price, do two things. First, go to marketingbookpodcast.com and click on the Content Marketing World banner. Make sure to go through marketingbookpodcast.com so they'll know I sent you. Seriously, there's a bottle of scotch in it for me for everyone who registers through marketingbookpodcast.com. Then, for the lowest price, when you register, make sure to use promo code MARKETINGBOOK and they'll knock $100 off your ticket price. $100. Think about it. That's $100 you can spend buying both of us drinks once you get there and still have money left over. I'll have more details after the interview. Today, we welcome David Meerman Scott back to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about the new sixth edition of his bestseller, The New Rules of Marketing and PR, how to use social media, online video, mobile applications, blogs, news releases, and viral marketing to reach buyers directly. David Meerman Scott is an internationally acclaimed marketing and sales strategist, author, and keynoter who has spoken on all seven continents. Forbes magazine said that David is one of those select few who saw and understood the social media phenomenon as it began. He's the author or co-author of 10 books, three are international bestsellers. The New Rules of Marketing and PR, which we're going to talk about today, has been translated into 29 languages and is used as a text in hundreds of universities and business schools worldwide. David also authored Real-Time Marketing and PR, a Wall Street Journal bestseller, Newsjacking, and The New Rules of Sales and Service. He's co-author of Marketing the Moon with Richard Jurek, which is now in pre-production as a feature-length film titled The Men Who Sold the Moon. And he also co-authored Marketing Lessons from the Grateful Dead, with HubSpot CEO Brian Halligan and a few very interesting facts about David. He is an advisory board member of the Grateful Dead Archive at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He has one of the largest private collections of Apollo space program memorabilia, and he is not an unattractive man. He was once a model in Japan. David, congratulations on the sixth edition of the New Rules of Marketing and PR, and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. Oh, hey, thanks a lot, Douglas. Wow, what a fantastic introduction. You um, you really make me sound like a superstar. I appreciate that. It's great to be on. Thanks, and I really appreciate the opportunity to interview you. And I should tell you that this is your third time on the Marketing Book Podcast. You were the very first guest I ever had on the Marketing Book Podcast, and you've now joined a very exclusive club called the Marketing Book Podcast Guest 
Three Timers Club. <laughs> You're now in uh, very rarefied air with Mark Schaefer and Joe Polizzi. Oh, how awesome is that? Well, yeah. I appreciate that. I remember the very first one. I actually remember you chatting with me when you were thinking about doing the podcast. I hadn't even started yet. So right. glad, glad to see that it's it's still doing great. Good for you. Thanks. And I just want to say one thing about myself, just because I want the listeners to understand the impact your book has had. So in my adult life, in my career, my business career, there are two books that have had the biggest impact. Lots of books have had impact, but two. The first one, in the 1980s, about your age, David, I got out of the Army, came back from overseas, and I wanted to figure out what I wanted to do, and I was studying business, and I, I thought, well, what about this advertising stuff? I, I, I Maybe I should consider that. I went to a professor who'd worked in advertising, and I said, what's one book I could read so I could learn more about that field? And she gave me a copy of Ogilvy on Advertising. Oh, uh, right, right. And I said, holy cow, that's it. That's what I want to do. And next thing I knew, I was working at J. Walter Thompson in New York, and I worked there for a number of years on, on Madison Avenue. Nice. Doing the old rules sort of thing. And then along the way, I moved to Virginia, started my own firm, and realized, probably like a travel agent did 20 years ago, that the world was permanently changing. And I thought, boy, I'm too young to retire. What? What, what, what's next? And somehow, fortunately, I stumbled upon an earlier edition of the New Rules of Marketing PR. And now looking back, those two were sort of the mileposts for the two aspects of, of the career I had. So, so Isn't that you. awesome? I, well, I, I greatly appreciate you putting me in the in the rarefied company of of Ogilvy. It's a it's quite an honor. So I appreciate that. But you, you know, it's, what's what's so interesting is that the Ogilvy sort of rules applied for a very long time because I, I call them the old rules. You you had to use advertising. You had to pay for access. You had to buy attention because we didn't have any other good way of reaching people. You know, you had you had to advertise in magazines or radio or television or newspapers or billboards or direct mail. But now we have such a great alternative which has, in fact, become the norm because the ways that people buy have changed. And now all of us, you and me and everyone listening, when we need to make a decision, our first step is usually to either go to a search engine, Google or another search engine, or go to the social networks and ask our friends and family members for advice. Whenever we have to buy a product or service or we're investigating a company we might want to do business with or we have a problem that we need to solve – we're doing it ourselves. We're not waiting for somebody to contact us. We're not putting ourselves at the mercy of the car dealer anymore. We're doing our independent research before we even think about um, buying a car uh, or any other product for that matter. So it's a new world. And what's interesting is that that new world that I first identified back when you read the first edition of the New Rules of Marketing and PR, I was writing that in 2005, 2006, that first edition came out in 2007. We've had a lot of changes since then. And now that it's, um, we're recording this 2017, and every couple of years I update the new rules of marketing and PR, and, uh, and, and the sixth edition is just out, brand new, fresh off the presses. Yes, and you were able to bring it in in under 400 pages. And that's actually a little yeah. – you could have gone for 800, but what it was yeah, just was, a little yeah, bit that smaller. Was, that was a challenge. I actually felt it was getting just a little bit bloated, so I made it a little bit smaller than the previous edition. Uh, I'm actually looking at each of the six editions 
on my bookshelf right now. And the first edition was is thinner than the second, which is thinner than the third and fourth and fifth is the thickest. But then we're going back thinner. And what I did there was I, I really looked very, very hard and very, very carefully at every section of the book, every idea, every story. And if I, I said to myself, if I wouldn't put this in a brand new book, then I need to take it out of this edition of the book. So, you know, a bunch of things ended up going away that had been in there in some in some cases all the way back to the very first edition. So it was kind of a kind of an important thing to do. The other thing that I do that helped to shorten the book was I removed the chapter on mobile marketing. So the first edition did not have a chapter on mobile marketing because the first edition was was written before smartphones became what they are today. It was before the first the first iPhone, for example. And so when smartphones became popular and when apps within smartphones became ways of reaching people from the marketing and public relations perspective, I, ha- I decided I needed to have a chapter about mobile marketing. And I can't remember whether that made it into the second or third edition, but somewhere around there. And then in this edition, here's what I realized. I realized that mobile is ubiquitous. You know, people, various studies suggest that when people are looking at websites or social networking, there's a very, very large percentage of them who are doing so on a mobile device, whether that's a a smartphone or or a tablet of some kind as opposed to what they had been using almost exclusively, which would have been a a desktop or a notebook computer. So to me, it didn't make sense to have just one chapter out of 24 dedicated to mobile marketing because mobile marketing is now like, it's it's everywhere. It's baked into every chapter, basically. It's baked into everything, yeah. So I, I removed it as an individual chapter, took some of the better stories that were in that chapter and put them in the right spots in other chapters and 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 wrote it with the expectation understanding that gee you know if you're talking about Twitter yeah it may be the mobile Twitter app it may be the Twitter app that's on on your computer but it, it it's no longer a demarcation and that helped to reduce the number of pages as well. Yeah. So you mentioned the book has to work for somebody who's reading it for the first time. For those listeners that are not quite as familiar as as we are, explain a a little bit more about what the old rules of marketing and PR are versus the new ones, and why are the old ones, however, so persistent? Why is there such an attachment to them? Yeah. So the way I look at it, the old rules are that the only ways that you can generate attention for you and your business and your products and services are that you either had to buy attention with traditional advertising. That's the Ogilvy approach. You buy time on television or radio. You buy space in magazines or newspapers. Uh, you buy the billboard on the side of the road. You buy a direct mail list and create direct mails that you send to people. Those are all forms of buying attention through advertising. Another approach is that you can try to go through the media to try to get reporters and editors to pay attention to your organization and generate attention by writing or broadcasting about you and their stories. That's sort of the traditional PR approach. And the third way to generate attention is the traditional sales approach, which is 
have an army of salespeople to knock on doors or cold call people at home or, or you know, man your, your physical stores. And as people walk into your store, approach them and find out if they can help them. And I'm not saying any of those are wrong. I'm not saying that if advertising is working for you, you should stop. I'm not saying that if cold calling people at home is driving your business like crazy, that you should stop doing it. But I am suggesting that those old approaches are not working so well for very many people anymore, number one. And number two, they don't reflect the ways that people are buying today. The way people are buying today is they're going to the search engines, they're asking friends and family members through the social networks. So the new rules of marketing and PR are that you need to create the sort of content that's found in the search engines when people are doing their research, and you need to be focused on creating the kind of information that will be shared in social networks and the sort of thing that reporters will find when they're doing their stories, and then they'll talk about you in their stories. So, so those are sort of the new approaches. I think, I think the second half of your question that why do people still insist on using the old rules, and many people do, I think the answer there is that, number one, they're fearful. They're, every human is fearful of change. And if we've already experienced one thing, it's harder for, it's pretty hard for us to change and do something else. And if we're, if we've focused a lot on the ideas of this old approach to reaching people and we understand it, it's hard for us to change and do something that's different. And number two, many of the more senior people in organizations today have had quite a big bit of success using these old rules. They've built businesses on the back of advertising. They've built businesses on the back of traditional selling techniques. And so their natural inclination is, well, shoot, I've I've built businesses this way. I've become successful this way. This is the way that I'm going to encourage my people uh, to approach business. And just because it worked 20 years ago doesn't mean it's going to work today. So what advice do you have for people, <laughs> those, all those people at organizations where the leadership does not have the right mindset, or perhaps they're what you call social media cynics who may not see any value in this approach? And don't say update your resume. <laughs> well, what I always suggest to people is to ask those people who are reluctant, how do they buy products and services? How do they decide what companies are going to do business with? And, and if they're honest, when you ask them, and if they answer truthfully, of course, that's how they buy they buy products and services. You know, if you say that if the boss tells you that they you, they want you to do another direct mail campaign and it hasn't really been working so well for you lately or they want you to spend a whole lot of money at a trade show and that hasn't been working for you lately, well, then you say, well, shoot, okay. When, you say to the boss, when was the last time you bought a product as a result of receiving a direct mail piece? When was the last time you bought a product as a result of going to a trade show? And, and, and they're, all, they're, they're, they're more than likely to say never or, not, or certainly not in the last couple of years. Uh, and you say, great. Well, when, when was the last time you bought a product or service as a result of going to Google and searching on a problem that you had or, or a type of product or service you wanted to buy? And, and they will all answer 
if they're being truthful, like yesterday, <laughs> you know, I did, I did that yesterday. So then, then the next statement, of course, is, well, I think we ought to be focused on creating our marketing and public relations efforts around the, the ways that people are buying today and that we ought to be creating content on the web that we ought to maybe not as, and be investing as much money in, in the traditional forms of, of trying to reach people and more in the modern forms of trying to reach people. Yeah, that's great. I, I've, I've noticed sometimes when I've been explaining it, like I'll describe the new way people buy and I'll see the heads nodding and they'll say, yeah, yeah, I'm smart. I, that's how I buy. <laughs> And then I say, oh, right, and, your, right. and your customers, you don't think your customers are buying that way too? And it usually, <laughs> yeah. you know, it gets the discussion going and they're able to realize that the earth rotates around the sun instead of the sun around the earth and right. kind of reframes their whole perception. There's so many gems in the book, but there's there's a, a, just a few I had to pick. And one of them is, let's talk briefly about the importance of goals, business goals. And I want to ask you, Sadly, what does a children's soccer game have in common with most marketing goals? <laughs> funny you should funny you should mention that example. I originally thought of that example when my daughter was 7. My daughter is now 24. <laughs> Gives you how an example a uh, sort of an idea of how long I've been using this example, but it's still absolutely valid. Um, what does a seven-year-old soccer player do, a team of seven-year-olds do? Well, they all chase the ball. You know, they don't think about the goal, the goal being, you know, where, where they score points by kicking the ball into the goal. Instead, they're all running towards the ball. They're all, they all want to be able to kick the ball, and they don't think about passing, and they don't think about getting the ball into the goal. And I think many times people in business are focused on not the goal, which is to drive revenue, but what they tend to be focused on are the sort of the easy things that they can measure, almost like going to the ball. They they, they focus on how many um, people follow us on a particular social network or how many people filled out a form on our website in order to download our white paper or some other some other metric that's reasonably easy to measure that doesn't actually reflect the ultimate goal, which is perhaps driving revenue or or keeping the customers that we have or some other goal that will actually drive the business forward. And uh, and so I think it's important to think, okay, well, what are the things that we can measure? How can we really make our uh, marketing and public relations programs focused on what it is that we want this business to do, which for most businesses is to have profitable revenue growth? And one of my favorite studies from the Fournays group talks about how 80% of CEOs in that survey felt that marketers were too disconnected from the financial realities of, of how their companies make money. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. I think, I think that's very, very true. And, and that really gets driven from the top. But it also gets driven from the, uh, from we marketers ourselves because we need to pester the bosses so that they they are uh, making us aware of what the metrics are and they're making us un- they're allowing us to understand who are our customers how are they how are we doing what are the things that are important to drive the business and how are we as marketers doing work that will drive the ultimate goals of the business now you mentioned customers and as as i read through the book once again i just noticed this massive thread <laughs> going in and out of the entire book, and that's 
about buyer personas. Yes. Can you can you explain for the listener what that is and why that is so crucial to so many aspects of the book and success? Sure, of course. Well, the reason it's important is because the traditional advertising approach to doing business is focused on products and services. And, you know, traditionally, when you advertise, you advertise your product or service. I mean, that's just what you do. And so what a focus on buyers does is it allows you to focus on who are the people who would buy our products and services? What problems do they have? How much uh, can I learn about the people who might be interested in buying a product or service like ours? How can I segment those people into multiple, um, I call them buyer personas, multiple different groups of people, and then I can create content that will be especially valuable to them. Now, I'll give you an example. So, and in this examples in the book. So think about hotels and think about the last time you visited a hotel website. I've noticed that most every hotel website is exactly the same. Why? Because the hotel websites have pictures of hotel rooms and the wonderful swimming pool on the front of the hotel website. And then there's a widget for pushing the button to reserve a room and there's the logo in the top left corner and there's a description of the hotel somewhere below the picture of the rooms and and and, and virtually every hotel on the planet has a same configuration of how they organize their hotel website and the reason for that is because that hotel website is built around the product which is a hotel room and so i would encourage people to think okay well how can i create a website that's going to be built around the buyers of hotel services as opposed to just the product we sell, which are these hotel rooms. So, for example, I was, uh, I'm not in the hotel business, but there might be five buyer personas. And I wrote about this in the book. There's one buyer persona is an independent business traveler who makes a decision on what hotel to stay at um, themselves. Another might be a corporate travel department that's responsible for booking uh, hotels for hundreds of people in their organization. And they would make a decision themselves based on uh, how they want to buy products for many, many people at once. Then you've got someone who's planning an event and they want to use a hotel and have a conference room for a couple of hundred people plus sleeping rooms for each of them. Or how about a couple who's planning on getting married and need a hotel uh, play, uh, for a reception. Um, so they need a room for the reception itself, and then they need a place for their guests to sleep. Uh, and then a, a fifth buyer persona might be a family who's going to be taking a vacation. And all of those people um, are buyers of, of the hotel services of, say, a ho for example, a hotel in Boston. And if that hotel were to create a website built around those buyers, it would be very, very different from the typical hotel that's built uh, around products and services. I actually, I was speaking at a conference last year in Warsaw, in Warsaw, Poland. And after I did my riff on hotel buyer personas, somebody approached me at, at the break and said, hey, David, you know, there's a hotel group here in Warsaw that does all this stuff that you're talking about. They're called the Puro Hotels, P-U-R-O Hotels. So I checked them out. And sure enough, the hotel that I found 
was not focused on what they do, which is sell hotel rooms, but instead it was focused on a buyer persona. The buyer persona is hipsters who want to travel to Poland. I thought, well, that's really cool. Mm -hmm. They had all kinds of really interesting photographs of the area around that hotel. The blog that they were creating had a blog posts about the different bars that were nearby. And it felt really focused on this particular buyer persona. And then when I checked on TripAdvisor, I was not at all surprised to learn that the Puro hotels in the cities that I checked were ranked number one of all the hotels in the cities. Um, because I think that they're so focused on an, a group of buyer personas that they uh, have done a incredibly effective marketing as a result. Mm, that's a great story. And one of the many things that related to the buyer personas, you explain why all this marketing gobbledygook that, that is so pervasive in the marketing world, and you've been, you've been in a 10-year war with it, or longer, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, right. Explain that all this gobbledygook and sameness and jargon speak, is, a lot of it is tied to the fact that they don't really know their buyer. Exactly right. You know, companies that use cutting edge, mission critical, and, and my favorite one that they use all the time is innovative. You know, as soon as a company says they're innovative, by definition, they're not because it's one of the most overused words there is by marketers. And, and if anyone listening in is using the word innovative, that's not a word that makes any sense whatsoever for your organization to use unless you've got a buyer persona that is only interested in buying things that are innovative. And, and, and nobody's really figuring that out. So these are just throwaway words, gobbledygook, as I call them, as you said, suggested, that just don't make any sense to be using in the ways that you describe your company because it's not the sort of language that your buyer personas use. The way to really make the written word come alive is to understand very, very deeply what are the words and phrases that your buyers are using to describe the problems that they're having and to describe the sorts of product or services that they're looking to buy. The only ways you can learn that is to actually quite literally interview representatives, representatives of your buyer personas to learn the words and phrases that they would use to describe uh, what their problems are and what it is they're looking for. Yes, and just to put a period at the end of this sentence, at the very end of the book, you talk about, you know, this may seem enormously overwhelming to most of the readers that may be new to this, and you acknowledge that, that it could be. And you said, well, maybe the first thing you could do one of the first things you could do is just do a little bit of buyer persona research. Yes. <laughs> just go talk to them. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's just amazing. So just wanted to ask you to explain the concept of you know, owning versus renting your marketing and why you recommend that companies should stop thinking of content creation as a marketing expense. Well, marketing has traditionally been an expense, you know, in a in in the way that your organization accounts for marketing. It's it's accounting for marketing on a monthly basis. And what that means is that virtually every marketer on the planet is then held accountable for what has the budget I spent this month produced for me this month. You know, typically that means what sales leads 
has your marketing program generated this month? Or how many, you know, if you're an e-commerce company or something like that, how many sales have you generated this month? But the truth is that marketing content is not something that that is only used this month and then goes away. If you're creating great marketing content, it lives forever. A blog post, a YouTube video, an infographic, those live forever on your website as long as you keep them up there. Whereas traditional advertising, if it stops being broadcast on television today, it's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. But something you create on, on a video channel or a blog post exists forever. So I like people to think that the marketing they're creating today in the form of content creation can live forever and can be providing value forever. I, I know I frequently will go in and look at my analytics on my website and on my blog, and I'll see that stuff that I created a decade ago is still generating results for me. I started my blog in 2004. That's 13 years ago. I'm still seeing blog posts that I wrote the very first year that I was blogging generating search results that are people are coming to me because they found me in something I wrote more than a decade ago. So I wish that we could treat marketing of uh, like in this way, like con the content we create, the marketing we create. I wish we could we could account for it like we do a patent. You know, a company accounts for a patent as an asset. You know, it's an asset that lives forever. They account for a machine that you buy as an asset. It's if you buy a machine or you invest in scientists that invent a new a new process that you can patent, the way a company accounts for that is not as an expense today, but something uh, that's valuable for the future, an asset that can be sold. I think the same thing is true of the content you you create. That when a company is sold, the URL, the website, the actual content on the web is an incredibly important asset, but is never accounted for in that way. And I think that does a disservice for what we do as marketers. Mm -hmm. So, David, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I think what what I really come down to is that this kind of marketing can be fun. It can be interesting. It can be enjoyable. Um, when I, I've been a marketer my whole career, and back in the day, although I was pretty good at it, and, be, and although it created a nice living for my family, I didn't really like doing brochures. I didn't really like creating trade show booths and, and all the other traditional stuff, old rule stuff I was doing. But over the last decade or so, I love the idea that I can create a blog post and people will find it instantly and it's free. I can create a YouTube video or a Facebook live live stream and put, push that out and be reaching people instantly right this second. And that's exciting. It's fun. It's interesting. And I think that although there might be some fear involved in, in getting going, once you do get going, this stuff can be really fun. Terrific. Are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? I've, I've been doing a lot of thinking about how artificial intelligence will affect marketing, and I'm waiting for a, a good book on that subject. Your friend Jim Stern who you mentioned in the book, he's got a book yeah. coming out on that, and I'm going to be interviewing him. So I haven't, I ha I'm supposed to be getting a copy in the near future, so I can't comment on the book yet, 
But I do know that there is a book on, on that subject. Well, that's I'm happy to, out. happy to yeah. promote that he's coming on the shows. Great. That's great. So how best can listeners learn more about you and your book? I'm DM Scott, D-M-S-C-O-T-T on Twitter, reasonably active on Twitter. And just Google my name, David Meerman Scott, to find all sorts of free stuff that I offer. The book is New Rules of Marketing and PR, the new sixth edition as is out now. Right. So it, when, whenever someone says to me, what's one book I could read to get up to speed and understand it? As a matter of fact, within the last hour, I heard from a listener in Kenya, and she's starting a tourism and travel business. I pointed her to this book. Oh, I appreciate <laughs> so, that. Thank you so much. I'd like to read a closing excerpt from the book on page 390. If I may be so bold as to boil down into one word thousands of conversations I've had over the past several decades, as well as my more than 10 years worth of blogging and the entire contents of this book, it would be this, attention. Entrepreneurs, CEOs, and business owners want people to pay attention to their company. Marketers, PR pros, advertisers, and salespeople are on the payroll to generate attention. Hopefully, this book opened your eyes to a new approach to this classic problem. So the name of the book is The New Rules of Marketing and PR, How to Use Social Media, Online Video, Mobile Applications, Blogs, News Releases, and Viral Marketing to Reach Buyers Directly, the sixth edition. The author is David Merriman Scott. David, thank you very much for coming back onto the Marketing Book Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Douglas. I appreciate it. And that closes the book on episode 136 of the Marketing Book Podcast. Links to everything linkable in the interview you just listened to are at marketingbookpodcast.com. And that's also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. And to register for Content Marketing World, just go to marketingbookpodcast.com, click on the Content Marketing World banner so they'll know I sent you. And then for the very best price, enter promo code marketing book. And if you have any feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you. Just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave me a message or tweet at me. My Twitter handle is marketingbook or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett. And please join us next time as we welcome Brian Eisenberg to the show to talk about the book he has written with his brother Jeffrey and Roy H. Williams, Be Like Amazon. Even a lemonade stand can do it. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.